Welcome back to episode 13 of the South London Press Football Pods. Another busy week for some of our clubs and we have the last week of the January window to wrap up as well. I'm once again joined by the SLP Sports Editor, Richard Corley. Rich, how are you doing? I'm good, Ed. Yourself? Not too bad. Busy day. Roy Hodgson's press conference, as I'm sure we'll touch on later. And uh, I think in general, it's been quite a busy week, especially with one of the clubs we're going to start with, which is Charlton Athletic, um, who appointed Nathan Jones on Sunday. Rich, you spoke to him for the paper. You were across the appointment before it even happened. How was he? Yeah, he was good. Um, it's an interesting one with Nathan Jones because we've spoken about him, obviously, in previous pods. In that period of time, we were talking about him in connection with, with Millwall because, of course, he got down to the final two on that particular shortlist. It was between Nathan Jones and um, Joe Edwards uh, for the position in Millwall, and they went down the route of going with Joe Edwards. Um, I think I've been on record as saying that I thought when the vacancy at Millwall first came up, I felt like Nathan Jones seemed like a perfect fit with the style of football he played. So, I mean, there's no other way of looking at it other than this is a, a really, really good appointment by uh, by Charlton, or certainly looks to be. Um, he's been sort of very confident, um, clear that he wants to kind of build something. He's talked about this being a project that he sees being similar to what he did at Luton. I mean, you look at his body of work at Luton, it's it's highly, highly impressive. Um, but in saying that, he also went into Southampton and Stoke City thinking that that was a project as well, because he said to me this week that he never would have left Luton if he didn't think he'd get the time to to implement what he wanted to implement. But this one looks like it's for the long haul. Um, strange situation, really, in one degree, in that um, Charlton announced the con- didn't announce the contract as long term. Um, someone had mentioned to me they thought it was three and a half years he'd signed, but he was asked about it at his actual proper press conference today at the training ground and said it, he thinks it's four and a half years till 2028. Um, so it's a long term deal. Um, He's got a great game to start with. Reading away, 3,000, virtually 3,000 Charlton fans are going to be there. And, um, you know, it's a massive game. Reading won in midweek. Port Vale has still got games in hand, but they lost the other day. Uh, Charlton need results. They need them fast. And um, he'll be looking to hit the ground running. Does he acknowledge that, that Charlton are in a little bit of a battle here? Obviously, I know the fans have been looking over their shoulders in recent weeks. Says here, I'm, I can't remember actually the last time they they picked up a win. That certainly hasn't been in 2024, has it? So, no. um, did he acknowledge that it was sort of it, it was going to be a battle to start off with his tenure at Charlton Athletic? Yeah, we did. I mean, it was it was funny. We had pictures. Keith Gillard got some shots of Nathan Jones in one of the lounges where they had the lights off, and and, and he was watching the game. Uh, we we knew that he was going to be at the match, and it made sense because. You know, you can watch a game on a stream, you can watch a video of a match, but as anyone knows, it goes to a game. You don't get that kind of total picture without being at the game. So um, we had some pictures of of him in the exec boxes, or in an exec box in the Alan Kerbishley stand. And um, quite a few of the messages, I I said, uh, what what do you think? As in, do you think it's Nathan Jones? But then people on sort of X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it, they were they were kind of saying what they thought he might be thinking. And a few of them were saying, I wonder if he's going to back out. Oh, my God, what have I let myself in for? So um, I did say to him, I said, you know, people were worried a bit that you were, you know, maybe might change your mind. But I don't think he's worried about the situation they're in. I mean, Luton, twice when he went back, when he went to Luton initially, they were fighting to stay in League Two and he kept them up. And that's obviously a pretty pressurised situation and not great. And when he went back to Luton the second season, I think he said to me that they were seven points adrift with nine games to play, something like that anyway. And again, they survived and then he built. And I think that's what he'll look at. And he'll look at the potential here 
um, at Charlton. And we know that it's a club that's been on a bit of a downward spiral for too long. But there's absolutely no doubt. I mean, the, the speed in which Charlton sold out those tickets and probably with Nathan Jones's appointment could have probably sold four or 5,000 tickets for that game. Um, it underlines that they are a club that have got an ability to build and go somewhere. So I think, I don't think he'll be too worried. The only way he looks to be up, we've got to hope so, because, I mean, League Two, there are some big clubs that have been in there, so you can't say mm. it's impossible. But um, I know you think you're pretty confident, Ed, aren't you, that he'll he'll kind of turn it around there and get him, get him firing. I think he'll get them promoted, not this season, but next season, I think. I was talking to Adam Sells, who's been on our, our podcast before, before, and obviously the bit you've done with, with Chris Powell, which I'm sure we'll touch on, just everything that screams Nathan Jones at the moment looks really positive. So I think it's a really smart appointment by Charlton, one for the long term, especially with his contract situation. I know that doesn't mean a whole lot in football, but it needs a project. You know, when you put pictures out of the Valley and there's barely any people there, it's sad to see what's, what's happened to the football club. So to get a charismatic sort of manager in, someone who's going to be the figurehead, play an aggressive style of football, his Luton team were really entertaining to watch. I think it's a, I think it's a really smart appointment by Charlton. Yeah, I think the other thing that's interesting this time round, and it's strange, again, in certain aspects, is when they sat Dean, it's worth pointing out that we're on to either permanent or caretaker. I think we're on to the fifth manager this season. So we've had, obviously, Dean Holden, Michael Appleton and Nathan Jones. We've had Curtis Fleming as a caretaker interim uh, and Jason Pierce caretaker interim, whatever you mm. want to call it. But when they... Um, got rid of Dean Holden. I think a feeling then was that the kind of applicants weren't super strong. You know, there were some okay applicants, but they weren't amazing. Now, at that stage, of course, in September, there's loads of the season left to go. And you'd think that that would make them more attractive than they are now. But what seems to have happened is the flip of that. I mean, all the, all the applicants that were kind of mooted as being in the running, like Alex Neal, uh, Mark Warburton, um, and those kind of managers that were being mentioned with the job were all managers that were interested. Um, Neil Warnock, a few, I think someone asked about Neil Warnock on one of the yeah, I was, I was, questions. I was going to say to you, I think Andrew Marriott wants to know if there's any other insight into potential Charles and managers before Jones, and you wanted to know about Warnock in particular. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing with Neil, and obviously I've got sort of experience of working with him in the past, and he, he, he was brilliant. I think he would have been a great appointment. <laughs> um, but... Neil will use embellishings and, and you'd be shocked to hear that. And, uh, you know, he'll he'll say things that will kind of help. And obviously he was quoted as saying when he went to Aberdeen this week that he'd been offered more money back in England uh, by a club there. Now, I just put it with CAFC on the sort of hashtag just as, as of interest to them. I, basically, whether he was offered more money by another club in England, maybe he was, but it, I don't think it was Charlton. I think what happened with Charlton is they spoke to Neil Warnock and he said, this is this is what it would cost you if you want me to do it for the season. And the indications I've had is that that figure, they weren't put off by that. So that could have been an option. I think in the end, they felt that, and I think there was, as we said before, a sort of short-term option and the longer term. But I think they kind of felt that Nathan Jones maybe did both. You know, like he had that ability to kind of, uh, make an instant impact and kind of rev things up. But he's also somebody that you want for longer. So that's what happened with Neil. I don't think he was ever actually offered the job. Um, I think Nathan Jones was always the one that was going to get it uh, once they went through the process. But, I mean, again, one thing that Nathan said in an interview, I asked him, he said he'd had chats with the ownership or owners. And I said, well, who are you talking about there? Because obviously it's quite a big there's quite a big investor field uh, at Charlton. And I, I asked him about Gabriel Brenner and Joshua Friedman. I said the American owners are kind of the money men or projected as the money men. And that's who he said he spoke to. He said he had conversations with both American owners and also uh, the decision makers, other decision makers, he said, at the football club. So, um, yeah, uh, so that was that was where it went. And people were asking, I think, again, another one people were asking about is Andy Scott, I think, as well, and how it affects Andy Scott. As far as, as far as I'm aware, no change there. I mean, people were beginning to wonder because Andy wasn't quoted in um, uh, the uh, statement that he got the job. Uh, Jim Rodwell was quoted in it. Um, 
and people were speculating, did that mean that that Andy was going to be going? But I mean, as far as I'm aware, Andy Scott was with uh, Nathan Jones at the game on Saturday. And I think he was also at the training ground on Sunday when Nathan Jones went in to sign his deal. And I think, you know, within that, they were talking about staff. They were talking about all different things that were kind of things that Nathan Jones wanted to talk about. So I don't think there's any any particular, there's no change as far as I'm aware in that. Um, obviously, Nathan Jones is going to want to have a say on recruitment. Um, and again, today, he said that there might be other people that kind of come on board or the process might change slightly. But he mentioned Andy Scott in that as well as being mm. sort of a key component of it. So, um, yeah, that's where it's at on, on that side of things. Yeah. Uh, in terms of this weekend, massive, massive game. Um, but I also wanted to ask you something that you did in, in the paper this week. Spoke to Chris Powell about Nathan Jones. What did he have to say? Because I believe he, he gave Nathan the job, didn't he, uh, in the academy? Yeah, I landed on my feet a bit with that, which is sometimes what happens because it was when you think, oh, wow, I really want to have a chat with you now. Because I'd, I'd asked, I'd obviously, I knew, I know Pauli and I'd asked him about, um, you know, would you want to have a chat about it? And I don't know how involved you were at the time because there was a crossover, although Nathan was only there for, for 12 months and left for, left for a role at Brighton under Oscar Garcia. And um, Pauli actually said to me, yeah, I was one of the people who interviewed him and we offered him the job. So as soon as he said that, you think, well, I really want to have a chat. So I think it was Chris Powell and Paul Hart, who was the academy director at the time. And Powell, said they interviewed five candidates for the job and they felt Nathan was the best one for it. Um, so there was some interesting stuff. Uh, well, I thought it was interesting anyway. He said that Nathan Jones, almost by his sort of force of will and force of nature, managed to get himself on the same UEFA pro license course that, that Chris was on and... Alex Dyer, who of course was part of his backroom staff, and they actually studied, I think, um, out in Turkey where they went out to sort of watch games and had to do stuff. And um, yeah, he spoke really well of him, thinks he's going to be a great appointment. I think they've kept in touch with the year that Nathan's been out of the game. And he seems very, very confident, Chris, that, that um, you know, Nathan's got all the um, ingredients as a manager to, to make it a success. He thought it was quite a big statement for Nathan Jones that, and also a nod to the size of club that Charlton can be, that, that Nathan had come out of a Premier League job and, and, and taken the League One job. So, yeah. um, you know, I mean, I think Nathan, we know that he's obviously applied for certain jobs or had interviews at, at a higher level. Um, I mean, there's no, there's no, you know, he possibly could have waited and seen if something else came up in that area. But, um, you know, I think it's, yeah, he, he spoke really well about him anyway and uh, thinks it should be good. And I think one of the things I'd add is, uh, I think we said about it before, I always think it's good if they've got a connection. At Charlton in particular, if you've got a previous link to the club, then that matters. And uh, it does give you a better chance, I think, of being successful. And Powley talked about that. that he said, I hope Nathan's like myself and Lee Bowyer that have, have managed to, to get the team up. Um, because obviously Nathan Jones, as I say, he was part under 21 league coach and they had, you know, that, that team did well. They had some good players who, who moved on from there and did well. Yeah. Um, he spoke to Nathan Jones also about sort of team, team news, injury news. Doesn't feel like he's going to be a manager who gives a lot away in that regard, but I think there was a little bit of an update about Chuck Sonico. Yeah, Chuck Sonico sounds like he's back in full training. Um, I know that Fans don't always like this when managers keep it all kind of quiet, sort of keep a sort of lid on it. But, um, you know, I, I think I, I get it. I get why. Because I, I know that you could say, well, yeah, but agents can tell. Agents have got players that other clubs can leak team info. We know that team info at every level gets out by and large. But I guess lower down, maybe it's not quite so easy as it is to maybe get Premier League team news and accurate team news. And um, so I suppose if there's a bit of confusion there, it's not the worst thing in the world. Um, so, yeah, Chooks and EK back in full training. But he did. He said, basically, if you ask me each week who's going to be starting, who's going to be in there, I'm not going to be doing that. So no. um, but what he also added was that I think everyone bar Miles Lieburn um, at the press conference today, he said everyone bar Miles Lieburn was training. So if that's the case, it means that George Dobson, who'd been out, would be back. And it also means that Panuccio Camera potentially is back available for selection. So we'll see on Saturday. Um, the other thing I was going to say with Pauli that he said is what I thought was quite interesting. He talked about that 
um, Nathan Jones a little bit similar with his team shape as Lee Bowyer. Obviously, we know that Lee used to like his diet 4-4-2, but a diamond midfield. He quite often would play 3-5-2. Uh, and um, basically, Chris was saying that Nathan Jones's Luton teams in particular were definitely that kind of either-or scenario that he quite liked rolling with. And he quite liked having, um, you know, a couple of strikers on the pitch at any one time. So a little bit of insight there into maybe what we yeah. could see tactically as well. <laughs> that that sort of works perfectly in terms of what Charlton recruited for under Michael Appleton during the January window, doesn't it? And uh, brought in sort of two attacking fullbacks and Kane Ramsey and Thierry Small after the transfer window closed. Uh, that was sort of their deadline day action. What have you made of those two signings? Well, Thierry Small, we haven't seen so far because he, he he wasn't involved the other day. Um, Kane Ramsey, I thought, had a, a, a slightly tricky debut. He got booked. Okay. Um I don't know how long he'd been on the pitch. If he'd been on there two minutes, then then I think it probably would be a surprise. And he also had a bit of a sort of air kick at, um, attacking in the second half where he kind of horribly sliced the ball out of play. Um, sometimes the problem, and you'll know this as well, is as journalists, sometimes we're looking down and writing stuff and you don't always, you're not just solidly watching the game all the time. So it's, it's hard to get a full sort of, uh, assessment of how they did, but it was a difficult game for him to come on into. I think, and Thierry Small, we've we're, we're yet to see. But um, one question that we don't know yet, no one's asked the question, is whether Nathan had any kind of input in those couple of deals. Because obviously Thierry Small, I think he would know from Southampton. I think yeah. Kane Ramsey probably doesn't cross over the time that he was at Southampton. But again, maybe he would know about him. There were certainly indications that if Nathan came in, he was hoping it might be done in time to get a couple of deals across the line. So maybe those two players are options that he, he wanted to bring in, but we don't know that yet. What I can say about Kane Ramsey is that I think Andy Scott went to watch him play against Sutton uh, and was left very impressed. And I think that's what sort of pulled the trigger on terms of okay. of them, of Charlton going for him. Obviously, they, they managed to get him on deadline day. I think we could probably say that another club maybe were in for him as well in terms of Peterborough. We're looking for a right back, but he's come down to Charlton and, and signed a contract here. Yeah, no, it's um, it's been quite a busy, busy month. Um, I do wonder as well, I think the activity they did with some of the signings they made, when we talk about managers and people that were interested in the job, I think managers out of work or whatever are the same as anybody. They'll look and think, oh, so what are they doing? And they'll be like, okay, there's there's some intent there to do stuff. So yeah. um, obviously we, we've got a hope that the recruitment delivers this time round. I mean, it's, it, you know, that was an important window, but also a slightly tricky one because I think, you know, there was doubts about Michael Appleton's future probably going into the window, even if they were, there was an intent for them to try and keep him. Um, but um, it's early days for these players. And of course, when you look at what Nathan Jones did at Luton, players really did get revitalised under him, I would say. And, you know, some of those players are playing Premier League football now. So, it's going to be fascinating to see how he gets on with that. I mean, I'm going to be at the Reading game on Saturday. Um, so, I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to it. It should be, it's going to be obviously be quite a nervy game, you would think, but I'm fascinated to see how they get on. I'm Zian Fleming and you're listening to the South London Press Football Podcast. Welcome back to part two of the South London Press Football Pod. And we're going to turn our attention now to, to Crystal Palace, who um, we've obviously spoken in the first section about a managerial switch around at... Um, at Charlton Athletic and the talking point for a little while has been, well, a couple of things really, the kind of running of the football club and also Roy Hodgson as whether he is the most suitable person to be sort of leading the team at the moment and taking them forward. So I wanted to ask first of all, Ed, how would you describe Roy Hodgson's grip on the Crystal Palace manager's job? Oh, it's, it's a real tough one, Rich, because... I say he's holding on to it at the moment just, but it's never been more uncertain in his 199 games in charge of the football club. Um, if he takes charge on Monday, which we're expecting to at the moment, he took his press conference today because the players will have Friday off before they train again Saturday, Sunday. Um, we'd expect him to, to lead out the team against Chelsea to manage his 200th game, but it's been probably the most closest I've felt to seeing Roy Hodgson actually be sacked during his tenure as Crystal Palace boss. That's the first time and and the second time around. Um, the 4-1 defeat at Brighton on 
on Saturday, which was Palace's heaviest defeat in the fixture against their arch rivals in 67 years. Um, just felt like a, mol- a melting pot that had been bubbling along for a while and eventually overflowed. You had goal, a goal given away after two minutes from, from a header, uh, Palace starting poorly in a game again. And then you can see the second and then you can see the third 83 seconds later. So it's by half time, they're 3-0 down. Fans have left. The second half didn't really get any better. And it started horrendously where after 10 minutes of being subbed on, Michael Elise pinged his hamstring after his first sprint and and, and was forced off. We've now found out that he's going to be sidelined for a minimum a two-month spell, which is devastating really to Crystal Palace's sort of attacking flair. and then for the rest of the second half, they managed to pull one back by Jean-Philippe Mateta, but end up before one defeat. And Joachim Anderson and, and Dean Henderson have to be pulled away by Paddy McCarthy from the away fans. There's arguments between the players and the supporters. There's more banners and protests. It's It's been a season that has been sort of sort of down from, from August onwards, and it's just been spiralling and spiralling towards this depressing state that Crystal Palace currently finds itself in and um, this week you thought after the defeat Roy Hodgson was was very close to probably leaving whether that would be sacking or Palace bringing in a new 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 manager ready ready to go but they haven't found one yet there are potential candidates out there which I'm sure we're going to talk and talk on in a second but reasons why they haven't come in or why they haven't had the trigger pulled on them yet so it's uh you sat in the press conference today wondering that whether that might be his last one as sort of pre pre game because Monday could be extremely toxic at Selhurst Park. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because uh, obviously, you know, we normally get an email through about the press conference day as yeah. well, and that seemed to come through very, very late. And certainly, I think probably fair to say, indications we've had are that Palace are putting feelers out to potential people they would like to have. Um, but indications seem to be so far. Am I right in saying that maybe that's not necessarily going completely smoothly, shall we say? And maybe that's another reason why Roy Hodgson, rightly or wrongly, in terms of that process, is is, yeah. is, is still in the position he is. I think the one they'd really like is Kieran McKenna from Ipswich. Um, obviously doing really well, done a really good job at Portman Road, taking them from League One to, to top of the championship instantly. They're, they're in and around it in terms of fighting for the automatic playoff spot, uh, playoff spot uh, promotion spot, sorry. It's um it's, it's fallen away a little bit for them in, in recent weeks, not not quite found the rhythm and the form, but this is one that I think the sporting director, Dougie Freeman, sort of looked at for a while and, and eyed and, and sees him as the long-term candidate. He's only 37, Kieran McKenna, but he's made a, an instant impact in the managerial world. But he'd come at a price Palace would have to pay to get him out of his his contract at Ipswich. Um, And there's no guarantee at the moment that he'd want to leave the job half done. And and while he has the chance of getting them promoted to the Premier League this season, walk away from the job half finished. So that's that one sort of ruled out or parked to one side for now. You have Julian Lopetegui, who um, has been at Crystal Palace games this season, both home and away. Um, He's one that Palace like, Palace have spoken to, but for some reason, hasn't quite happened. Not not sure if what we can sort of say on that one, but it's it's one that I think they've looked at, but not quite decided that he's the right one to come in. And then when you're looking at it at the summer again, might not be a whole sort of host of money to to throw at the at the squad. Um, and that was one of the reasons why he left Wolves in the summer. So I think you'd be back at, at square one. Um, other candidates as well. You have Oliver Glasner, ex Eintracht Frankfurt boss. I think there's members of the of the board who like him. Um, and Steve Cooper as well has been mentioned, but as far as we understand, that's that's not likely at this minute in time. So Palace isn't a very attractive job at the moment. The the four best players, Michael Elise, Everett Eze, Sheik Decoria, and Mark Gahey are, are all injured. We obviously um, put out yesterday that Everett Eze is going to be sidelined for up to three weeks with his hamstring injury. And then you have the likes of Jezra and Ratsaki, who suffered a, a really nasty blow to his other leg not the one that he's just recovered from, the other one in when his first 45 minutes back in, in football on, on Monday night for the under-21. So Palace's season has just been gut-wrenching. Every time you think you're you're about to string a run of games together with the two best players, Eze and Elise, one of them breaks down and then almost like snap, the other one has to do it as well just to compound the misery. So 
Roy Hodgson is going to be looking at his options this week, and I think he'll be thinking that Mateus Francher and Nario Hamada are, are probably going to have to come in and, and save the season. These are two exciting prospects, but I can't say that I've watched them and thought that they're more than that at the moment. I can't say I think that they're ready to be starting in Premier League games. And now they're going to have to come in and be the sort of flair players for, for Crystal Palace for the rest of the season. I think as well, one of the indications I think as, that we've heard was that, uh, that at least one of the candidates potentially is a little bit worried about the ownership situation. Um, yeah. You know, and again, it's difficult to know exactly where that's going to go, isn't it? I mean, obviously the fans have protested. It depends whether there is going to be any kind of change in the dynamics of the the ownership structure as well. I think we said a few weeks ago, it just feels like the longest game of poker being played in the boardroom at Crystal Palace at the moment. You've got people not showing their full hand, people wanting to to take more stake, people wanting more influence, people not really sort of willing to relinquish that. So it's it's always going to end in war. But Steve Parrish is obviously the figurehead of it all. He has to take the brunt of it from the fans. The fans have obviously protested and, and called for him to be out there were chants at Bryce in the way of we want Parish out and we want Hodgson out. It was it's a really undignified way for the the sort of the whole season to go really especially I think Roy Hodgson sort of confirmed he's confirmed throughout the season that this will be his last spell as Crystal Palace boss. He's not coming back for another year. So whether that's going to be brought to an end early is out of his hands. But to think this is going to be his two hundredth game on Monday and and he's never sort of felt more unsure about his position it's it's a really sad way for it all to end that the ownership structure at crystal palace is is one that needs to be addressed soon because it's it's gone a, it's gone along for a while in terms of the fact that, that the, the the american investors with john texter as well it, it all sort of felt good in the first season under patrick Vieira, but since then it's felt very disjointed different ideologies different ways of people wanting to take the football club and it's come to this point now where it's all just felt too ruptured and and I'm not too sure how they're going to pull it all back together so I think that's something that we'll desperately need addressing in the summer yeah it's a difficult one with uh, as you say I mean obviously I'm a big fan of Roy Hodgson for what he achieved at Fulham and it just seems such a shame that if this is his last year in the game it's kind of sort of finished the way that it has and like you say there are so many other factors behind um the team struggling uh and you know the general level of unhappiness that it can't just be pinned on the manager. So it seems that it seems unfortunate. What did you make of the Michael Elise scenario then? So as with all these things, there's then sort of theories that Roy had been told that he couldn't couldn't play Elise, that he played him anyway. Then there's mentioned that the medical staff had said he could only play a maximum of 45 minutes. I mean. I was watching match of the day and they sort of felt everyone, including Elise, needed to take a portion of the blame for what's happened because you're now effectively not going to see him, well, very unlikely to maybe see him again this season. Yeah, no, yeah. It's um, Roy Hodgson in his press conference today admitted that everyone sort of had to take a little bit of blame for what happened. He even said that the fact that Michael Elise is a little bit of a quiet guy, maybe he could could have said, listen, I'm, I'm probably not ready for this one, but he wants to play. And when, when Crystal Palace have no explosive wingers or no flair in the team, I mean, Michael Elise, for my money, would 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 have been in the France squad, I think, for the upcoming Euros with with the form that he'd been showing. I think nine goals in ten games, nine goal contributions in ten games before that that Brighton cameo. I mean, that's as good as any any forward player in the Premier League, really, isn't it? It's, it's an FPL manager's dream with what he was returning. So um, it's it, it's disastrous to not have him in the squad. It completely changes the balance. And then when you have Eberichese out as well. He obviously didn't make the game after the hamstring injury. He picks up against Sheffield United. I think you're probably damned if you do and you're damned if you don't in Roy Hodgson's position at that minute in time. If you don't bring Michael Elise on when you're 3-0 down and he's only allowed to play 45 minutes, you're pretty much surrendering at half-time. And I think that's the last thing he'd want to be accused of, of thinking, well, let's just get it to 6-0 to Brighton and then let's keep Michael Elise. I get it. The game's gone at that point, but you never know. If Palace pulled one back within the first five minutes of of the second half, then they've got the rest of, of the sort of second half to, to try and win the game and with Michael Elise on the pitch. So I was in two minds about it. I, I I could understand why people say leave him on, but at the same time, he's your best player and you always want your best players on the pitch. If the medical team had 
it cleared them to play for 45 minutes. I, I didn't see any reason why um, Roy Hodgson wouldn't have thrown on. But you could tell as soon as he made that first sprint, he was right in my sort of eyeline vision when he did it. I could tell he'd stopped. He'd not gone as quickly as he could and he signalled to the bench that he needed to come off and there was just a collective groan. Roy Hodgson turned around to his coaching staff and, and just started laughing because he, he, you know, he doesn't know what to do in this situation. It's It's been rotten luck throughout with the injuries and I think that's probably been the biggest disappointment of the season. I think you're so right. When, when people talk about sort of uh, shouldn't have brought him on but and then if he hadn't brought him on, people would have said, Typical that you know didn't bring our best player on in the game might still be there for us. It's that sort of hindsight that fans do so often, or people do just generally, don't they? And um, you know, you used to get it, you still get it all the time now. When a certain player doesn't come on, people will say that was the one player that should have come on. In yeah. another game, that player will come on and will play crap, and then fans will say, "Well, we never should have brought him on this one, or never started him. This guy should have started." So, exit. Just the, I guess, comes with the territory of being a football manager that your decisions get picked apart and that's in the moment. So, yeah, interesting to, to hear anyway. In terms of just quickly to wrap up the the deals that, that Palace did do, biggest spenders, I think, of any Premier League well, club in yeah. the January window. So, Adam Wharton um, from Blackburn, who I think we might have touched on at least in one of the pods. And as well as that, Daniel Munoz, the... Uh, Genk right back, very uh, attack minded. Um, obviously, Walter won for the future at 19. Uh, Munoz is 27, but uh, a couple of late deals done by Palace. Yeah, and Roy spoke really well about Adam Walton today. I think there's been some criticism for some reason from the fans saying that he called him out for losing possession for the third goal, but he did. He lost possession for it in Brighton, scored instantly from kickoff. Um, but what Palace have missed this season is a link man, someone to sit in front of the back four or sit just in front of the defence and and find the attacking players because Sheik Decore did that so well. He's obviously ruptured his Achilles and, and is out for probably the rest of the season. I don't, I don't think there's a chance he, he plays again this season. So Adam Walton comes in. Roy said that he's been very impressed with him in training and what he can do. And that's been Crystal Palace's biggest miss this season. Um, I expect him to probably start against Chelsea just given the fact that Palace are so sort of light in, in every area. In fact, midfield is probably now the, the area they're probably most well stocked, which is which is crazy really when you were looking at it a few weeks ago thinking it's incredibly light. So uh, and Daniel Munoz did really well against Bryson. I think defensively he maybe struggled just a tiny bit. I think that the second goal he couldn't stop the cross. Tyreek Lamptey was effectively playing as a left winger for the majority of that first half. So he was being doubled up on constantly. But um he had the best pass percentage of any Crystal Palace player on the pitch, 97%, which was actually the highest any right-backs had at Crystal Palace since being promoted to the Premier League back in 2013. So I think 39 goal contributions in 140 games for Genk, he's going to get forward and he's going to, when he does have an attacking winger to, to join in with him, I think it's going to be a really sort of frightening combo. Um, you know, there's, there's players there at Palace who are going to, help them see through it. I'd quite like to see Odson Edward and Jean-Philippe Mateta start in some capacity, whether that's Edward on the left or behind Mateta. I think that could work really well. Jordan Ayew knows the Premier League. He's not necessarily the best in terms of attacking contributions, but he'll win clever free kicks and he'll get Palace up the pitch. So not all hope is lost, but just when you lose Eberich Eze and Michael Elisa, you're taking two Champions League players out of a team that that is towards the bottom end of the Premier League. And, and that's why Palace are in the position they are right now. Now, there is a question that I had with Palace one. I'm not sure if the actual X or Twitter handle is correct, but I'm going to go with the I am Milky Joe or not bot, it says. Uh, the question is, why is Henderson being made a scapegoat by some of the Palace fans? I, I don't understand why he's being made a scapegoat. I've watched, I've watched pretty much every, well, I've watched every game he's been involved in and that Manchester City game, he was excellent. And I think the rest of the, the goals that he's conceded, he's not really had a chance with. Um, I think this is always the problem when you've got two first-team goalkeepers who are competing for a spot. You're, you're seeing it at Arsenal fans. Fans are divided on what they want. I, I, I don't think if Sam Johnson's waiting in the wings that Palace fans are calling for Dean Henderson to be to be dropped. Um, I'm not sure he's actually done anything wrong in, in the games that he's played. And that's why Roy Hodgson hasn't deemed the correct decision in terms of dropping him for, for Sam Johnston coming back. So 
I think the the factor is is that Palace failed to replace Wilfred Zaha. I'm not sure how many times I've said those words this season, but it feels like every day I say it. Um, and they spent £20 million on a goalkeeper. I think fans would have liked to have seen that £20 million spent on a left-winger replacement for Wilf. I think that's where the it's like a deep-rooted ideology that they can't get out of their heads. They can't understand why, when there was money available, they didn't spend it on a, possession, a position which needed real strengthening. They obviously tried for Maxwell Cornet in January. Hodgson admitted himself it was one they were keen to do. Um, he would have welcomed him into his, his first team squad. I know there was a report that Hodgson wasn't quite keen on him, but I think I think by all accounts he was. So, and now we need it even more. Well, they need it even more than ever with Jezra and Ratsaki being injured. Welcome back to, to part three of the South London Press Football Pod. Rich Millwall, you spoke to Joe Edwards this week for the paper. Obviously, Kevin Nisbet out for a, a while with a hamstring injury. What's what's the situation there on that one? Yeah, well, we knew it wasn't a short-term one, and I asked Joe whether you know how confident he was he would have, or how likely it was that he would have Kevin Nisbet back available to play some part in the rest of the season. And he said, as it stands at the moment, he wasn't sure it was that likely. He thought that Kevin Nisbet could be fit before the end of the season to be training, but then made the point that to be training and then be able to play are two different things. So it's not looking super likely that, that he probably will be back this season. Um, I sort of then followed it up by asking about whether he felt he was well-stocked enough with striker options. Now, of course, we said it before, a manager can't really necessarily say, well, I feel like I haven't got the options there, but he touched on the fact that as well as having Tom Bradshaw uh, and Michael Obafemi, he, uh, who have sort of had to have their minutes managed uh, the other day at Hull. They played a half each. Um, you know, he has got Idamo Marcus, should be back fairly soon. He can play there, Duncan Watmore, you know, Ryan Longman. There are options there, although Ryan Longman's got a shoulder dislocation that isn't going to be long-term, but he's not available right now. So it's not totally ideal. They're not really, you know... You can change a manager, but the one thing that we haven't been able to sort out at Millwall or hasn't been sorted out at Millwall for quite some time is just their potency in front of goal. And it's probably been something that's held them back in previous seasons as well. Um, I mean, one of the things that that um, I asked Joe about was the two chances they had against Hull. One was a Zeon Fleming chip where he tried to lob the keeper and the keeper just caught it. And Tom Bradshaw had a late chance. And there were two people you want the chances to fall to. And he sort of took that on and said that he'd actually watched the goals back last season, all of them that they'd scored, the pair of them, because they got 32 goals between them, um, 17 for, for, for Bradders and, and 15 for Zian. And he said what, what he found was that it wasn't really from any kind of pre-planned play. It was quite random. It might be second or third phases of long throws, corners. And he was saying it's, it's not like they can almost play that way to sort of get them scoring that many goals again. Um, it was almost like a little bit random the way that they managed to get the goals and the way the chances broke to them. So probably not what people want to hear because they do need more firepower. And at the moment, there is still a risk that they could get dragged into things if they don't start picking up a few more results because their home form has not been great this season at all. As we said, one of the worst records at home in the league and if their waveform begins to dip it really really puts pressure on and they've got a difficult game of the weekend Coventry City uh, I think I'm right in saying that Coventry have unbeaten in their last 10 games at home uh, they've only lost once at home all season uh, to West Brom so and they had a really good win in the midweek in the FA Cup they won 4-1 against Sheffield Wednesday so it's a it's a tricky tricky game for Millwall that they're, they're heading up to at the weekend it's the Sunday game it's on TV, yeah. so um, you know, um, it's yeah, it's at the moment that's where they're kind of at. Um, it's a shame that Obafemi, because of the inactivity at Burnley, they've had to manage his minutes. So, um, but I guess another week's training on top of the game, you'd think he'd be in a better place if he was to start again that he could play for longer. I was going to ask you how 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 have the two loanees, Obafemi and, and Tanganga, got on at, at Millwall so far? Um, I didn't see the game at the weekend because I was at Charlton. Um, it seemed, judging by social media, there was a bit of criticism about... I saw at least one person who posted not particularly happy with them, but 
you just can't tell if that's in isolation. I mean, the game over then, I thought Tanganga, mistake aside, had a decent match. So, um, Obafemi only had 16 minutes there. But, I mean, it doesn't sound like, from what I've been told about the whole game, Hull were very dominant in the first half. But even though their XG at the end of the game was only like 0.49, um, they they really, I think, dominated the ball in that first half. So, I don't think Obafemi got much chance to do much. Um, but, um, so I think at the moment, still early days. And so difficult to judge them really at the moment beyond the sort of bits that I've seen of them. So in terms of the paper, bit of reversal here. You took on some of the Millwall heavy lifting this weekend and you you had a chat with a couple. We did something a bit different this week. We thought we wanted to find a bit more out about Adam Mayer, who came in late in the window. And we spoke to, or I say we spoke, you spoke to their Morecambe's Academy manager, Stuart Drummond, and their head of academy coaching, Neil Rainwright to find out a bit more about him because he came through the ranks there. So what, what what were the sort of main takeaways, do you think, from that conversation with the pair? Didn't sound like it was the easiest of natural transitions for Adam Mayer from, from Morecambe's academy into the first team. Sounds like he wasn't offered a, a full-time sort of professional deal straight after his scholarship ended. Um, got signed on to another scholarship under the guidance of Morecambe's academy. And then from then on, just looked like he really kicked on, did really well under Derek Adams, got his League One, League one debut, became more influential. Um, the major sort of takeaway I came away from writing the piece and speaking to the pair from was that they needed to build up Mayer's confidence quite a bit. Um, this was this was a, a kid who had been sort of bouncing around academies in, in the north, whether that was Preston, Berry, Tranmere. So being at two academies in Tranmere and Berry that both closed and then had to deal with being released by Preston and coming into Morecambe. Um, you know, this is probably reckoned a few times maybe that his football dream could have potentially been over. So coming to Morecambe did really well by the sounds of it. Um, I think the major sort of thing that they were looking at was that he was physically, he was very sort of ready for it. I think I think there's a quote saying that he was a physical specimen. So um, I think Millwall have probably already noted that as well, perhaps. So it's it, 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 by all accounts, that he went into the first team afterwards, really kicked on. He scored directly from a corner. Um, interest in the summer, but decided to stay and became even more sort of prominent in League Two for them this season. And obviously decided to to join Millwall in, in January. Millwall obviously saw saw something in him and decided to to bring him in. What I love is you didn't mention one part of the actual piece, which um, <laughs> would normally would normally be the headline, uh, which would be the next Gareth Bale. But that wasn't exactly yeah. what they said. They, they, one of, I can't remember which one of it, uh, either Stuart or Neil said it, but they, they Stuart, said that there yeah. was similarities with Gareth Bale. Now, of course, what we normally do in the media is we grab that and run with it and we just do the next Bale. Uh, that would be a bit unfair on him because um, no one's saying that he's next. he's going to rock up eventually at Real Madrid, although who knows, maybe... Maybe that is the pathway, Millwall, um, you know, sort of kicking kicking things on. But um, it gives you an indication anyway that he's someone yeah. that looks like he, he's got potential for sure, which is obviously why Millwall have brought him in. Yeah, it came about because I asked what sort of winger is he for the Millwall fans? And they said he's, he's quick, likes to get by the byline, past his, past his uh, defender and cross it. Got, apparently got a very good crossing technique, so... Millwall fans should certainly be excited. Maybe not this season. I assume he'll probably just be sort of drip-fed minutes here and there. But one for the future, this could be a very sort of shrewd signing for Millwall. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I did ask Joe again this week whether he would be in the squad. And he sort of answered he'll be in the first-team squad every day training, but sort of hasn't said yet. Like, yeah, he's definitely going to be in there in the match they squad. Millwall got a few players potentially coming back now. Ryan Leonard has trained all week, so obviously very versatile, can play midfield, can play in defence. So I think he'll be he'll be back in the group as well. So that bench is not quite as depleted as it was um, a few few weeks ago. I'm Jake Cooper and you're listening to the South London Press Football Podcast. Welcome back to part four of the South London Press Football Pod and we're going to now turn our sights on to AFC Wimbledon. Um, I guess probably might be worth starting this part with a, a bit of a look back at the end of the transfer window because we talked about Palace being notable spenders at the end of it. Obviously, 
for Wimbledon, we had discussed on more than one occasion whether they'd be able to keep hold of um, Ali Alhamidi. And I mean, in the end, it, it obviously didn't work out. Ipswich came in. Um, the player was, was away with Iraq, but it didn't prevent, as you'd expect, a deal to be done. Um, and he moved. What, what, what do you make of that transfer, Ed, first of all? I think it's an excellent move for him. Um, I always thought he'd, he'd jump over League One, I, just with the way he was finding the back of the net, the way he, he absolutely set League Two alight. He was pound for pound the best striker in that division. So with his age, um, with his style of play, his explosive pace, I always thought he'd, he'd go straight in at championship level just because of the pure amount of goals he scored. Um, and when a club like Ipswich come in, who, as we've already mentioned, in, with the Palace section aren't far away from those automatic promotion spots, I think it's really hard to say no. It's really hard. You know, he'd been at Wimbledon for a year, done really well there, done exactly what Wimbledon had asked of him, brought him in on a free turned an amazing profit out of him. Um, obviously, they had a sell-on clause to Wickham, so a bit of the money that, that they received had gone there. But um, he leaves as the club's record outgoing, potentially going to be also the record outgoing of a team from League Two. So I'm not sure they could have asked for much more from this Ali Alhamidi transfer. He's going to be a great miss. Um, Jackson said he's, he's the best player in the league. So he's going to be a great miss in, in terms of what, um, what he brought to the team, the goals he brought to the team, just being that talismanic figure as well. Ali didn't really, you know, there'd be times where he's not been that sort of influential in games and then he'd pop up in the 80th minute and score just a chance from nothing or he'd use his strength to drive down the byline and cross for him other goals. So um, a real dent to the playoff hopes. But with signing Josh Kelly from Solihull, I think Wimbledon have, done their homework. Obviously, we spoke to Johnny Jackson for this week's paper and it sounded like Kelly was always the one they were going to move on if they did lose Alhamidi. Um, so they brought him in and they're going to be hoping that he could sort of bring something similar. I think I think he's as close as the sort of similar sort of play style that they can get. Ali's sort of pressing was a major part. I think he and Omar Bagel were the, the highest presses in terms of... Um, I think there's a stat, I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but in terms of pressing stats, I think those two were right at the top of it. So that's what Josh Kelly needs to bring to Johnny Jackson's side. What were the other deals at the very end of the window off the, off the top of my head? I'm trying to think, what what, what yeah. else did they do? It feels a lifetime they, ago that we covered the yeah. transfer window. They signed Kofi Barmer from, just stop there, I don't know why. I signed Kofi Barmer from Crystal Palace, um, a defender, and they've needed him because Ryan Johnson and Joe Lewis have both been sidelined now through different injuries. Um, Johnny Jackson told our website this week that they're going to miss a fair chunk of games and that's similar to the Palace one with Elise and Eze. It's gut-wrenching because those two had formed such a good partnership at the back. So good that Wimbledon decided to go out and, and break their record transfer C to, to sign Joey Lewis from, from Stockport. That's how good he'd been. So, um, But Kofi Barmer came in at Bradford, by all accounts, did very well. Uh, Johnny Jackson said it was a real defender's game and, and he cleared his lines at every opportunity. He's going to be playing alongside Lee Brown, which he'll have to adapt to because Lee Brown's a left-back by trade. Doesn't necessarily boast the pace going forward, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying that. So maybe him sitting in that role isn't going to be the worst thing in the world. But um, for a 23-year-old in Kofi Barmer, I think what Jackson liked about this transfer was that he's got experience. He already has over 100 senior games under his belt, having come through the youth sort of system in Ireland, playing for Ballymena and, uh, and Lan. I've absolutely butchered that pronunciation of it but um, uh, by the time he came to Crystal Palace's academy he was very experienced so he went on loan to Port Vale didn't quite work out for him sounds like he lost his confidence a little bit there so dropping down to League Two I'm sure they would have seen with John Kamani Gordon and how well he's done there I think Palace actually suggested to to Wimbledon when they came to watch John Kamani Gordon that the biggest takeaway was that Wimbledon centre-backs were sort of holding them back a little bit because Lewis and Johnson weren't there at that minute in time when Palace came to watch John Kamani so it's a signal of how the two clubs are developing their relationship a little bit. I think that's been strengthened by Andy Thorne coming in as chief scout at Wimbledon. He obviously played for both clubs. Palace had only, uh, Wimbledon had only taken one loan, Quasi Apaya from, from Palace before this window, and now they've doubled it up. Um, and Wimbledon also signed the experienced John Joe O'Toole from Mansfield on loan for the rest of the season, just purely because of the injuries suffered to, to Lewis and Johnson. And um, you're going to be at the game on Saturday, Barrow. Um, mm -hmm. 
obviously, I think we've had a question that came in from, let me find it, James Howard. Will Wimbledon get autos or have to settle for the playoffs? I mean, that's a pretty confident, <laughs> it's pretty confident that you're assuming the playoffs are a minimum. Um, playoffs, I'm going to assume, because automatic looks like it's going to be very difficult. I think they're around 10 or 11 points off it, just off the top of my head, but there already looks like there's a gap forming in, in the national, in the, in the league two standings. Um, there's a gap from, from sixth to top, and then there's a gap from sixth to seventh. And that last playoff spot is, is what Wimbledon will be looking at probably claiming. Obviously they'd love to get in there straight away and claim one of those, those, those automatic spots. But I think it's going to be really tough and losing Ali Alhamidi is just going to make it even harder. You know, Josh Kelly needs time to gel. Ronan Curtis as well, a really a player who is too good for, for league two on his day, but suffered a horrendous ACL injury and had to drop down trained at Wimbledon, fell in love with it. They got to sign him for the rest of the season. When he's fully fit and firing, I think he's going to be a real asset to this team. But that's not going to be for a, a few more weeks. The temptation is obviously to throw him in. But if you throw him in and then he suffers an, another horrendous injury, you're going to miss a, a player who could become the best player in League Two with what he could bring to the team. So I think there's a really good squad still, despite losing Alhamidi. I think there's a really good group of players there. Um, Jake Reeves is injured, though, again. So that's just a, another sort of you know, Jackson's missing the spine of his team that formed such a good part of the first half of the season. Ali's gone. Reeves, Lewis and Johnson are all injured. So he's going to have to find a way of grinding out results in the next couple of weeks just while they get through this rough patch. But if Wimbledon are still within touching distance of, of those playoff spots come March, I'd, I'd put good money on them sneaking in there because there just feels like there there is still something special going on this season. Um, I think the main prerogative now for Wimbledon should be tying down Armani Little and, and Omar Bugel to longer contracts because they're both up in in the uh, in the summer. And also Johnny Jackson's contract is another um, another sort of topic for discussion that, that needs to be brought up in the not-too-distant future as well. We're going to wrap up ap- episode 13 of the South London Press Football Clods. I'm sure next week will be just as busy in terms of managerial. Uh, not games We've got Palace against Chelsea, haven't we? We've got midweek. Yeah. Um, Charlton on Tuesday, Millwall on Wednesday. What about Dons? Are they playing Ed or not? Yeah, they're away at Accrington. Okay, so yeah, so matches coming up, everything never stops. It's why we're so hard working, mate. We just we just we just don't know anything but graft, do we? That's all we know. <laughs> graft, graft, and a bit more graft. 